Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students at Cambridge University chat with the experts who've contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students with researchers and authors from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. My name is Sophie Carlin. I'm a second year undergraduate English literature student. Today I'll be interviewing Dana ellis Hunnis about her book, Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. Um, Hello, Dana. Thank you for coming along today. Thank you so much for having me. And you said my name correctly. I'm so pleased. (laughs) Amazing. I am. Yeah, I was. I'm I'm glad that I got it right. So (laughs) we're off to a good start there. (laughs) Yes. So I think a good place to start. Um, You explain this a bit in your introduction to your book. um, But just to clarify to our listeners who might not have read your book, what was it about this kind of exact moment in history that made you feel that this book needed to be written? You know, what kind of motivated you to start this project? Um, There's a few things that really came together for me to, um, I guess, have the impetus to really just put this down into paper, into words is, um, you know, I, I had just finished my research in Ethiopia, looking at climate change and how it affects people in developing countries who don't have the resources uh, that we have, you know, in developed countries for irrigation and, and things like that, and how they're actually um, being affected by it in that moment, as well as I, you know, had just given birth to this tiny little baby, not even three kilograms um, big just absolutely tiny. And I'm looking down at him and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at everything I've learned in, in reading the literature and in reading reports and um, watching documentaries. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, um, I'm worried about this planet. I'm, I'm worried it's not going to sustain um, his generation, your generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the kids that are growing up. And I guess it just really had me very worried. And so Um, The only way I knew how to deal with it was to write it out and kind of work through, I guess, my feelings on it and my scientific background and and what could I do because I'm not seeing enough movement from governments, from political leaders. So that's really how it came to fruition is my worries um, about the pace at which climate change is exacerbating, Mm -hmm. but the fact that, you know, like, the governments of the world are not doing enough and so yeah (laughs) yeah so it it sounds like it was as much a personal project as it was a kind of project about kind of trying to sending a mess send a message out to the general public kind of working through your own feelings about climate change as well would that be kind of accurate to say that oh absolutely I mean yes it it really was um, my way of trying to find solutions to this problem that individuals can do mm-hmm. and giving them that hope that, Hey, you know, there are things you can do. Um, and here's the, the supporting literature, mm-hmm. but also yes, very much a personal project. Like I really do want this planet to be sustainable for you guys and, and for my son and for future generations. Absolutely. Both. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of thinking more about those kind of motivations behind your writing of the book, you kind of speak a lot in your book about um, the context of COVID-19 and kind of thinking about the climate in the context of the pandemic. So, you know, in your chapter on animal exploitation, kind of talking about managing animal populations in such a way to kind of prevent transmission of diseases like the coronavirus. So was the pandemic a kind of key motivating factor for you as well in getting involved in this research was sort of seeing the news headlines about that something that kind of motivated you even more 
I would say that the COVID pandemic gave me sort of the time to breathe a little bit, ironically, mm -hmm. um, and, and really think about the context of what are we doing here? You know, how is it that this uh, virus came from an animal and spread, you know, spilled over into humans? And mm -hmm. exactly what are the risks of this happening again? Because this is a reality. Um, you know, three out of every four new infectious disease is expected to come from animals. And so mm -hmm. also, what are we doing in terms of feeding antibiotics to animals um, as well that live in these conditions? And how will that affect public health, human health as well? Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, I think, um, you know, it just hitting home that, you know, the flu of 1918, the H1, uh, the original SARS um, that came out in the early 2000s, you know, all of these are animal diseases that did eventually spread into humans and just kind of thinking about, you know, it happened once it happened again, what's to say it's not going to happen again. So here are some things we, we do need to think about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was um, interested by, because obviously you have done a lot of work throughout your career on nutrition and teaching about nutrition as well. And that was a really interesting background to bring to the issue of climate emergency. And I wanted to kind of ask about that because, you know, nutrition and food and body image can kind of be a source of trauma or emotion or contention for a lot of people, you know, negative attitudes about it are kind of encouraged from a young age a lot of the time unfortunately so I suppose that must make it difficult to kind of talk to people about food in the context of the environment when they're so kind of emotionally invested in that invested in that way so when you're kind of educating about nutrition and the environment how do you handle the topic of food sensitively because obviously it's something that people are going to respond quite viscerally to in a lot of cases Oh, that's, uh, that's, yeah, I, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I, you know, it, even though I'm, I'm approaching 40 real soon, I, I look in the mirror and I, you know, I look at you and I'm like, I don't, I don't feel much older than you, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I know I'm sure you get that all the time from like your parents, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm almost 40, you know, it's, it's so yeah. bizarre how we age and yet don't, don't really it, it's just, uh, it's not, um, they don't coincide together, it seems mm -hmm. like, but I remember those days, you know, I, of course, I remember growing up and having uh, body image issues and, and children or other teens, you know, saying mean things to you. That's just part and parcel, I guess, of growing up. And it's something you have to, and I think that's part of the reason I ended up in nutrition, to be quite mm -hmm. honest, is because I wanted to understand how what we feed our body keeps us healthy, um, and keeps us, you know, vibrant and, and feeling good. And so um, absolutely nutrition is very personal to people for many reasons, culturally, uh, familially, yeah. um, just socially with interacting with our peers. And so I think that is an interesting issue to navigate um, both as a young adult Mm -hmm. And even as we get older, you know, we get more ingrained in our habitual ways. And, yeah. and so I think talking about it and kind of iterating to people, look, I'm not asking you to become vegan. I'm just mm -hmm. suggesting that there are ways to be culturally sensitive and follow your um, more culturally specific type of um, flavors and diet while also being more environmentally friendly by choosing to eat 
less meat and not making it the centerpiece of the meal and making it more of the condiment or the, the flavoring. Because, you know, truly, if, if most people in developed countries reduced their intake of animal products by three quarters, that right there would solve huge amounts of the emissions and the water use and the land use mm. that our diets, you know, produce. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not sort of about kind of like this wholesale scrap everything that we've done so far. It's just about kind of finding out what works for people best on a very kind of individual basis. Absolutely. And that's a lot of what nutrition and nutritional science is. It's it's working with individuals, meeting them where they are, but also providing them the information and the tools that they can use to better their own health and be more environmentally friendly while also being cognizant that people do come from different backgrounds. And so they do have these different cultural, social, economic needs that we have to also be sensitive to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of moving on to kind of thinking more about the book in, in, in particular, um, in your introduction, I was really interested by this analogy that you gave for the earth kind of being a human patient suffering in hospital and kind of considering, well, if a human was unwell, we would do everything we could to make them better. So why aren't we treating the earth in the same way? So do you think we need to go as far as kind of changing the language or rhetoric that we use to talk about the earth? You know, is that is that something that will get people to see the urgency of this situation is kind of using different language to discuss climate change and nutrition and the environment? I would like to say yes. I I mean, I would like to say that I, I hope and wish that people would understand the urgency of this without necessarily needing to humanize uh, the planet, because I know some people will say, oh, well, you're, you know, you have just turned the planet into a human, like that you can't do that. You can't turn animals into humans. You know, we, we talk about that all the time, but I do also think there is this distance we place between ourselves and the planet and the planet is a system. The planet Mm -hmm. has all of these systems, like our bodies have all of these systems that interact. And so I do think that if people are not necessarily understanding the urgency of this with the way we talk about it now, perhaps humanizing the planet um, might make all the difference in the world. I'm I'm hoping, you know, because recently, um, actually I was having a conversation with my husband about this and and my frustration uh, with, the lack of movement on climate change. And he had this wonderful analogy, believe it or not, my husband did. And um, it was cancer. You know, right now, climate change, it's like a a slow growing cancer. Mm -hmm. We can still cut it out right now, Mm -hmm. but the longer we wait, the more likely it is to metastasize to a point where it almost doesn't matter what we do, we won't be able to cut it out. And I thought that was brilliant, you know, so- yeah, you never know where these analogies will come from, but yeah, yeah. I suppose it's kind of a useful way into the subject for some people to think about those kind of analogies. It sort of illuminates things in different ways, which maybe is useful, I suppose. Well, and the fact that I think also I work in hospital. I work, you know, I'm a dietitian at UCLA Medical mm. Center, so I I see some of the sickest patients in the world, and I I have this firsthand experience of seeing patients when they're kind of at their worst and how we can improve them with these changes. And so Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I can't exactly remember how I thought of this analogy. I think I might've been swimming one day, just swimming yeah. laps. And that's some of, sort of my best time to think. Yeah. And all of a sudden it, it came to me and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I have to write this down. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned as well that kind of the birth of your son was sort of kind of a key motivating factor for you in writing this. So as a parent, how do you recommend that we kind of um, encourage these thoughtful, reflective attitudes about nutrition and the environment in children from a young age? You know, is this is that kind of preventative approach or sort of a complete kind of revolution in values? What's needed, like kind of teaching children the sort of this thoughtfulness about the environment? I absolutely see no harm or danger or um, pain in doing that whatsoever. In mm. fact, it's become such a natural lexicon in our house that yeah. uh, he just, my son understands it. He's eight years old now. He, he talks about it. He, he gets it. Yeah. Um, and so I do think, you know, rather than, and we don't talk about it necessarily in the, in the very scary real terms that, you know, maybe adults would be more likely to use or even, you know, college students like yourself. Mm. But we do talk about some of the issues of um, growing food because we have a community plot on campus and and we talk about some of these issues. And um, I just think it's important to not be afraid to talk about this with your children because Mm. they're the ones who are growing up in this world as are, you know, as are you. And so I think they're the ones who need to be able to speak with their parents about it and say, gosh, you know, mom, dad, I'm, I'm scared about this. And yeah. I want there to be more action about it. I want you guys to vote for leaders who, who care about these issues. And, mm-hmm. and so I do think it's an important discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, a question about kind of the process of writing this book, did it energize you or did it exhaust you? Um, <laughs> to kind of, you know, being armed with information about the environment is empowering, I suppose, in a sense, but also a lot of that information is shocking and terrifying and exhausting, probably. So I just wondered what the process of writing this was like for you emotionally. Oh, wow. You are full of really great questions. (laughs) Um, You're hired. No. Um, (laughs) You know, it, it, it was all of the above. It was the first half of the book, which is sort of, this is where we are right now. This Mm -hmm. is what we're facing in the future was very difficult to write. It was emotional. It was, um, exhausting. As you said, it was, uh, mentally draining at times because I'm, I'm, as I'm writing all this and researching all of it, I'm like, Oh my God, this is horrible. And then the next, you know, the next page, oh my God, this is even worse. And so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It can, it can drive you into feeling rather depressed about the situation. Mm -hmm. But with that said, the second half of the book is 20 solutions or 20 ideas and actions we can take right now to not feel so overwhelmed by the situation and not feel so depressed. These are 20 actions plus, you know, a recipe with like a bunch of movies and uh, documentaries and books to read, but it really is all of these tools that we can use to feel like, Hey, I am making a difference. I am doing something. I'm not just sitting here throwing my hands up at the problem and saying, okay, well, if I can't do anything about it, cause I'm one person, I guess nothing's going to be done. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that part I would say was more inspiring and, and made me happier, um, Mm -hmm. gave me some hope, Yeah, but you know, we really need people to put these actions, uh, 
into action and, and a lot of people. And so yeah. I'm hoping that as more people understand and, and are interested in the topic and, and in the actions, they will you know do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really liked that chapter that you've had on the kind of positive, the examples of positive action being taken, because I think you know, whilst it is important, as you say, to acknowledge all this kind of shocking, these shocking statistics that we have, it is heartening to read about the positive actions as well. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what was the most kind of encouraging or positive thing that you learned about in your research? What kind of really heartened you when you were researching for that chapter? I think just knowing that there are groups out there um, I mean, I, it's hard to pick just one because, which is why I gave like seven or eight examples, mm. because they're all in different areas. You know, in one organization is rescuing orphaned elephants in, in Africa. And I mean, I just, you look at baby elephants and you, you just, I melt, like, you know, yes. I'm just like, thank, you. <laughs> yeah. thank goodness there's someone saving them, yeah. you know? And then, you know, there's the other organizations that are saving, um, trying to save the the ice in the Antarctic and then save whales in the ocean. And, and, and so I think it's, I can't just pick one, which is again, why I do bring up seven or eight um, organizations that are doing really, really good work. And as you said, it just gives me the warm feeling, you know, yeah. fuzzies all over. Cause, cause yeah. I know like not everyone on this planet is, is, is doing bad there's a yeah. lot more people doing good. Yes. And we have yeah. to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, something else that really interested me about your kind of methodology with the book as well is that you used really accessible language throughout the book. Um, and was it really important to you in kind of writing this to remove this discussion just from academic circles and to kind of make it accessible to everyone? Because, you know, this is a problem that affects us all. Was that something that you were trying to prioritize? Yeah, that was absolutely the goal of my book because mm -hmm. so many times in academia, and there's nothing wrong with academia, but mm -hmm. so many times in academia, I write a report, the only people who read it are other academics, other professors yeah. who are doing this similar research. And that's, that's great and all, but really I think there is this need for the general public, the general population to also be aware of what's going on and not just leave it to academics to solve or technology to solve. I think people want to feel that they themselves are, are acting on it and doing good and are a part of the solution. So I did, I really, I, I wanted to write it for the general person uh, to take an interest in and not feel overwhelmed by the language or, you know, those types of things. I wanted it to be accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of noticed that a bit because you use the pronoun we a lot in your introduction, like we need to think about this. We mm -hmm. need to take note of that. Do you think that's kind of a useful sh mental shift to make, you know, thinking about ourselves as a collective working together against this rather than individuals out there, you know, fighting for themselves, every man for himself, my mm -hmm. actions don't make a difference kind of thing. Do you think that's an important kind of attitude shift for us to have? I think so. I, I think it's important to understand that we are all in this together because mm -hmm. we only have one planet, you yeah. know, granted each of us has our own individual bodies, our own individual lives and our own individual desires in life, but truly this is our only home. And mm -hmm. so we do need to think about it. I think as a collective, 
we and not he or she or they or them. It, this is this involves all of us. So um, I did, I think, purposely choose the pronoun we because I, I did want to make it about all of us, you know, not just about one person. It's about all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thinking more about your kind of um, academic background that you're bringing to this and you mentioned um in the book that you kind of teach a nutrition course at, um mm-hmm. for graduate students as well um and I wanted to ask you what have your students taught you about nutrition and the environment and climate change what have you learned from them in the process of kind of researching and teaching about this I've learned from my students that they're very interested in these topics they want to know more um, I think there's a lot of a lot of students feel in some ways their hands are tied because maybe they just came of age to start voting, but there hasn't been an election yet, or um, they want to do more, but they feel like I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, and so I've learned from them that it's not necessarily as cut and dry as it as it seems or as it looks from my perspective, because I've been through that time, you know, I've, I've learned all of this. And so I do have this understanding of um, the bigger picture, I think, but I've also learned from my students about their own personal barriers or blockers. I know that's some of the word you guys use in, in the UK. Mm. I love it. Um, (laughs) and, and so I know that there are other circumstances outside of just my own reality that Mm. I have to take account of. And so I think being exposed to other students from other backgrounds has actually been really helpful to me. In addition to my, my personal travels, um, Mm. in my life where I've seen, uh, other cultures and, and other, um, countries and just learned. And I think that's honestly the best teacher in the world. I'm not the best teacher in the world, but I think just experiencing other cultures, other countries, learning from people who are different from yourself Mm -hmm. is, is the best thing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of thinking about sort of, um, learning from different age groups and learning from your students, would you say that there are so sort of from your research, would you say there are certain age groups more engaged in the idea of climate change than others? Is there a kind of generational gap between, you know, young people who, you know, there's a lot of kind of youth climate protesters like Greta Thunberg who are extremely hyper engaged in this. Is there a kind of generational gap between them and their parents, would you say? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of still sort of sorting that out a little bit. I would mm-hmm. say your age, you're, you're in your 19, 20, 21 ish. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. 19. I, yeah. Yes. I would say your age college students are very, very engaged in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spoken with some high school students recently and it's interesting because, um, I don't necessarily feel like, uh, they're as motivated, which is interesting. Like, I feel like they're a little more, um, indifferent, Mm. to some degree and also feel like, well, I can't do anything. Yeah. You know, I'm only 15 or 16 technology needs to solve this. Um, whereas I feel like young twenties are very engaged and do Mm. have more hope and are more action oriented, which is, I, it's a little opposite of what I was anticipating. I kind of thought the younger, um, would be more 
uh, action or motivated, kind of like the, you know, Greta Thunberg, who I, I always joke, I say, I want to be Greta when I grow up, um, <laughs> you know, just because she's, she really is this uh, climate warrior. And I strive to be that, you know, I, I strive to motivate large swaths of, of the, the world to really feel this urgency mm-hmm. um, that climate change is this big issue and yeah. we do all need to do something about it. So it, it is interesting. And I do feel like as you, you know, I think Greta is now 18 or 19 herself. So right around your age. Yeah. And I do yeah. feel like your generation is, is very, very motivated, but I also don't know if it's a country thing too, because mm. I feel like Europeans are also much more, in tune and here in the states it's much more politicized right okay that's quite an interesting yeah national difference then yeah yeah so there'll be a lot of um, students listening to this podcast um and listening to what we're talking about just now and they might be you know kind of concerned about the environment but are not sure where to start um Mm -hmm. so what would be kind of your recommendations for a student who's you know kind of 19 20 doesn't have a huge amount of money but wants to kind of try and make an impact how could they you know create an affordable diet or take action to kind of you know positively contribute towards counteracting the climate emergency yeah well the number one thing that a student or anyone can do actually right now to have a a big impact is to look at their plate And so, you know, just changing the, what is the main focus of the meal? So instead of like the burger is the main focus of the meal, making that the, you know, like a veggie burger is the main focus of the meal. Um, And then I guess if you really want, you know, a little bit of meat, having like an ounce or two, 30 grams, something like that. you know, just, just these little changes, these little switches can be overwhelming in, in the amount of um, difference that they make. Mm. And, um, you know, there's this misconception that a plant-based diet is more expensive than, um, I guess, more of a typical Western diet. And by Western, I mean like Western countries, uh, yeah. d- developed countries where there's a lot of meat consu- consumed. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of you know, whole grains and legumes and pulses and seeds and nuts that taken all together, vegetables, fruits, things like that, that actually would save, you know, quite a bit of money every year, probably 600, 700 pounds. I'm just trying to do the conversion in my head um, compared to, you know, here it would be like a thousand or $1,200 per year from making those switches. Yeah. Um, So it doesn't have to break the bank. It doesn't have to be crazy expensive to make these Mm -hmm. switches. Um, And my book does talk about some of these swaps that we can make that are not only better for our own health, but they can save some money. And they are also, of course, better for the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of thinking about that um, sort of plant-based diet and the the recommendations that you're making, I think... um, you know, how, how could we sort of change how our culture speaks about or deals with plant-based diets in order to encourage it more? So, for example, do you think, you know, restaurant menus, you know, they'll often only have like one vegan option or one vegetarian option. Are there kind of cultural changes like that, expanding the options at a restaurant that we can make to encourage plant-based diets and make it seem, as you say, kind of accessible and affordable and healthy? 
I think that there are a couple ways of doing that. Number one, the consumer, if they are, you know, requesting more plant-based items, I think that provides some motivation for restaurants to make some of these swaps. So mm-hmm. we vote every time we spend money, we say, mm-hmm. Hey, I want this item on the menu, or can you make this particular item for me? And more and more people are, I think, trending in a plant-based manner. Mm-hmm. And so I think restaurants are seeing these trends. And so I do think they are trying to make them more accessible. Yeah. Um, I think another thing is if restaurants, so there's this idea of nudges and making little changes. And so if the plant-based options are listed at the top, and are quite robust. So you're not just your only choice is a salad. You know, if you have like a really nice plant-based option that will fill someone up and you have that listed at the top, people read down a menu. They don't, um, they'll be more likely to choose the plant-based option. So that's another thing. And then I just think, you know, as, as if we don't consider plant-based in terms of like, I'm going to call myself vegan. I'm going to call you vegetarian, but look at it more as the food. Mm. Um, I think that takes away some of the um, identity that people may or may not want to have. You know, not everyone wants to be considered vegan or vegetarian because they're not, or Mm. maybe they just want to focus on the food. And so I do think that's another important aspect, um, not necessarily feeling like we have to identify in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that links back to what you're saying as well about kind of people seeing this as almost kind of a politicized issue in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is maybe not always helpful. In, is that a kind of accurate thing to say? I would say so. I mean, because I, I know there's unfortunately a lot of pushback against veganism. Um, mm-hmm. I don't quite understand it, but at the same time, I... I understand that if you don't want to be identified in a particular way or you you have a negative connotation when you think of that, then I have no problem if you don't want to be vegan. You know, just do your best, eat more plant-based meals, really focus on the food. So as opposed to, you know, how you identify, because we all have different reasons for why we might do something. You know, one person might go plant-based because they don't want to harm animals. Another person might go plant-based because they don't want to hurt the environment. And yet another person might go plant-based because they want to improve their health. Yeah. Yeah. Why should we judge someone and call them something or not? Because they're not perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thinking about more kind of ways that we can sort of encourage people to take action, you sort of um, included quite a long list of book and film recommendations um, Mm -hmm. in your in your book as well. And, you know, I'm thinking about the recent film Don't Look Up that came out and sort of targeted a lot of these issues. Do you what kind of role do you think that media like documentaries and TV and film and books what role do you think media like that has in kind of bringing about awareness of the climate crisis? Is it kind of helping or hindering or can it have a positive impact, do you think? I think the visualization that you get from documentaries is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I you know, what takes me, a picture is worth a thousand words, what takes me a thousand words to explain, you can see in a picture in a matter of moments. Mm. So I do think having these visualizations and even I dare say dramatizations um, can be very helpful. They Mm. can evoke emotions that might make people more likely to act. Um, So I think I, I wish there were more um, documentaries, 
more films about these subjects done. Um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of criticism about Don't Look Up, but mm. I actually, as a climate scientist myself, I was like, this movie's brilliant. Like, I don't understand the problem with it. This movie is everything that I feel as like an environmentalist. I'm like, come on people. We really need to work on this yeah. now. You know, yeah. it's like that comet coming down in uh, in six months, but yeah, um, yeah I, I, I see that there's far more room for more of these than um, fewer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of looking at the other side of the coin then, you know, talked a lot about like what people are doing and what action people are taking, but what are the most common kind of reasons that you see for people not taking positive action against the climate emergency? Is it to do with like just wanting to bury their head in the sand or is it related to kind of this phenomenon that we're seeing emerging called climate anxiety where people just get paralyzed by it and can't act? What do you think is kind of stopping people from, you know, you've outlined a very, a series of quite specific and affordable and straightforward actions. So what's stopping people from kind of taking those actions, do you think? I think it's a little bit of all of the above. <laughs> you said yeah. if I have a multiple question, I choose all of the above. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think there is this sense of climate anxiety and a sense in some people of this hopelessness where if big actions are not being taken by governments or um, international entities, well, why should I bother? You know, if, if they're not doing anything, I'm insignificant. I'm this one little person. What is it going to matter anyway? Why should I try? Mm. So I think there is some of that, but I also think that there is a little bit of wanting to depend too much on technology mm. um, and saying, well, you know what, in, in 10 years, technology will be here that will solve this for us. And my big thing is, well, that that very well could be the case, but it could also be that the, the technology won't scale up fast enough. And so in the meantime, we all still need to do our part. How do we expect governments and, and international organizations to have the, the desire to act when we can't even bring ourselves to act? So exactly. it's yeah. sort of all of the above. It really... I think there's a hopelessness. I think there's a maybe anxiety, depression, indifference, kind of all of the above. But I think everyone needs to to do something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So kind of thinking about this sort of almost paralysis or doom or gloom that people feel when thinking about the environment. Do you think this tactic that we often see in the news of almost like doom mongering, like exposing people to sort of high amounts of shocking and scary information, do you think that's a helpful strategy in waking people up to the climate emergency? Or do you think it needs to be counterbalanced by a more kind of, as you said previously, meeting people where they're at and kind of saying, okay, I understand your anxiety. Here are some specific ways we can resolve it. Here's also some exam examples of positive things that are already happening. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, I, I wish I had the answer to that. That is mm -hmm. a really great question um, because... I don't feel like people are acting fast enough or doing enough. And so I want to shock people. I want to be like, look, this is what's happening. And, and yeah. this is, this is urgent. And like, like, look, people, this is what's going on. I mean, really, I, it, it, I do wish there was like all this doom and gloom. So people got it. Yeah. Um, 
but I also don't know. I I'm sort of at this place right now where I, I feel, uh, I went through, I'll be honest. I went through a major depression when I first started learning about these issues. Mm. And there are days now, even I'm like, Oh my God, nothing's being done. Nobody's doing anything. Nobody cares. And, and we need to shock people. But then I'm like, but I don't know, you know, so it's, it's really, I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's better um, to, to scare the heck out of people or to show them the good. I, I don't know. I wish I had an answer for that. To kind of continue with this um, discussion that we've been having about, you know, really action based approach, you know, taking practical steps. um, How, how can we, challenge others or educate others in our kind of interpersonal lives about the climate or nutrition um because you know it might be kind of difficult to convince a parent or grandparent who's very kind of stuck in their ways to kind of make these changes what how can we sort of deliver that to the people in our lives as well i think some of the most important things we can do are just to continue providing information from reliable sources Mm -hmm. and having conversations with people, kind of understanding where are they coming from? So Mm -hmm. I know, for example, in my own family, when I've had conversations with my parents, you know, they are kind of set in their ways. My father more so than my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother has really embraced plant-based eating. Um, My father, not as much. And I think just, but having conversations about it um, can help enlighten both you and them to what the other person is thinking and, and feeling about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think understanding those feelings can help open up lines of communication and say, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, look, dad, you don't have to go uh, vegan or plant-based overnight, but how about at our next meal uh, as a family, why don't we maybe cut back on some of the animal portions we're serving just because do it for me or, or do it for, you know, your future grandchildren or whatever the case may be. Um, I think finding ways of having these discussions that are both respectful, but also informative can be really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of thinking more about those actions that um, we, we all kind of need to take in our lives against the climate emergency. And you speak a lot in the book about what actions you've taken personally. Um, but I was wondering, what actions are you looking to implement next? Is there anything that you're kind of looking at and thinking, oh, I'd quite like to try that out? Or I've seen like this new sustainable clothing brand that I think looks really great. Is there anything else that you're sort of interested in trying in that kind of realm of things? I mean, I'm always learning and and trying out new things. I think, you know, we live in an apartment complex. And so uh, we take our composting right now up to our community garden. But I think something I'm really interested in trying next would be composting at home. Like right now, we don't don't do that. But um, I would really like to do that and learn more about it. I know there are simple ways to do it. Um, even with just like a box at your own home. And so it's not something I've tried yet, um, but it is definitely something I want to get more into. I'm always looking for more eco-friendly brands um, out there, significantly less plastic. That is always something I'm working on. Um, You know, we've already made the transition from bars, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, soaps and, and other 
shampoos and things that come in plastic to bars, bars of soap and bars of shampoo and bars of conditioner. And so it's just an ever going on journey. And absolutely, you know, I, I definitely, I mean, I almost never buy new clothes. You could ask my husband and he'd say she buys the fewest things in the family. So (laughs) I never buy new clothes, but, um, absolutely when I do, I do, I do constantly want to be looking out for, um, eco-friendly brands and not just greenwashing, you know, actual brands that have transparency on their website, on, you know, whatever, uh, however we find them so that I can buy clothes that I know are not contributing to uh, environmental degradation. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so just kind of one final question, really, um, taking it back to the reader of your book, who, you know, is the, ultimately the person that you're trying to sort of deliver this information to and encourage to take positive action. How would you like your readers to feel after reading your book, what would you like them to take away from this? Empowerment. Mm -hmm. I want the reader to understand the gravity of the situation, but I want them to walk away saying, Hey, I just learned about 20 things that I can start doing today that actually will make a difference. Things that I can do right now in my own life that aren't impossible, that don't require the government to act on. I want people to walk away feeling like I can do this. Mm. I can make a difference. So I think that's the number one feeling I want people to walk away with after reading the book is a sense of empowerment, a sense of um, this isn't hopeless. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's kind of reinforced as well by the kind of recipe cards that you have in the book that are kind of designed to be cut out you know you don't want people to leave the book on the shelf you know right right so as much yeah yeah, I mean as much as it's not a cookbook recipe book um it is a recipe book in that it's it's 20 things 20 actions we can all take and absolutely I did make the recipe cards at the back because I'm thinking to myself hey you know not everyone's going to want to tote this uh fairly heavy book around it's actually for its size, it's actually a really heavy book, but, um, I mean, it was surprising, but I'm like, I want people to be able to cut these out and just sort of put them around their, their house and say, Oh, I want to try that one today. And it, you know, it's like, this takes 15 minutes and it, it gives you this health benefit. And these are the actions you have to take. So very, um, very tangible, very practical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that is just about all we have time for today. Um, But thank you so much for coming to speak with us. We really appreciate you kind of giving up your time and giving us all your kind of um, helpful and insightful advice about this. Oh, my gosh, it's my absolute pleasure. And I never consider it giving up time. I consider it um, an investment in in the future, an investment in, you know, teaching others about these uh, these important issues. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, And thank you to all our listeners for um, following along with us. Um, Make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube for more fascinating events. And follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with experts on body image, time travel, aliens, counter speech and much more. Thanks very much for listening.